and welcome to Baiju's IAS. For quite some time now, the government is seeking parliamentary approval for a bill, but it is not happening, primarily because the government lacks majority in the Rajya Sabha. Multiple ordinances have been promulgated on the subject. There is a raging debate going on in this country on this particular issue, and we are talking about the Muslim women protection of rights on marriage bill popularly known as the triple talaq bill in this video lecture let us discuss all that you need to know regarding triple talaq bill but first up the concept of marriage in islam islam places a particular emphasis on marriage in fact marriage is a sacred institution in islam that is why celibacy or bachelorhood is discouraged in islam islam says that marriage completes the faith of a Muslim. But at the same time, this marriage is also a contract, a contract between husband and the wife. And just like any other contract, this contract can also be broken. That means the divorce is allowed. But what are the Islamic ways of granting divorce? Let's have a brief understanding on that. The first one is divorce by mutual consent. Husband and wife married for some time. Now, there are irretrievable differences between the two. And they both decide that let's mutually end this relationship. Let's end this contract and then the divorce is formalized. That means both husband as well as the wife, they mutually decide to separate from each other. They mutually decide to end this contract. And that is how the divorce is formalized. That means first, divorce by mutual consent. Second is khula. And khula is something which is initiated by the wife. It's important to understand that in Islam, the right to grant divorce is available only to the husband. This right is not available to the wife. Wife can only seek divorce. Wife cannot grant divorce. This power or this right to grant divorce in Islam is available only to the husband. So here, the wife is seeking divorce from the husband. If husband agrees, then the divorce is formalized. If husband does not agree, then what this wife can do, she can approach a Sharia court and Sharia court will then decide whether this legal contract will end or will continue. If the wife is not satisfied with the Sharia court as well, then she can approach the normal judiciary in this country. But it is important to understand that Khula is something which is initiated by the wife. If the husband agrees, the divorce is formalized. Why is this right to grant divorce available only to the husband and not to the wife? Let's not get into that because that's a separate matter altogether. We need to understand the concept of divorce. So first is divorce through mutual consent. Both husband and the wife, they agree to mutually separate from each other, to mutually terminate this legal contract and then the divorce is formalized. Second is khula and khula is something which is initiated by the wife. But wife cannot grant divorce. That power is available only to the husband. Then we have talaq. And there are three variants of talaq. Number one is talaq-e-hasan. What is this talaq-e-hasan? The husband pronounces talaq but only once. And then waits for 30 days. That means if the husband has to grant divorce to his wife, he says talaq once and then waits for 30-day period. What happens in these 30 days? Two things can happen. Number one, arbitration. Number two, 
reconciliation. What is arbitration here? If the husband has granted talaq to his wife, then the village elders can come into the picture, family members can come into the picture and try and convince both sides, husband as well as the wife, that you look beautiful together. There are differences in every relationship, but you should move on and you should continue with this legal contract. There is no reason for you to separate from each other. Arbitration can take place. Reconciliation can also take place. Both husband and wife, they can mutually decide to reconcile all their differences. They can mutually decide that now we should give this relationship another chance. And during these 30 days, at any point in time, the husband can take this talaq back. That means this talaq is revocable. That means once the husband pronounces talaq on his wife, he waits for 30 day period. During this 30 day period, reconciliation can take place, arbitration can take place and at any point in time, this talaq can be revoked by the husband. If it didn't happen, then say talaq again and then wait for another 30 days. And another 30 day period is meant for reconciliation and arbitration. But if husband decides not to revoke this talaq, then he says talaq again and at the end of the 90 day period, the divorce is formalized. That means what is the Islamic way of granting divorce? talaq hasan What is talaq hasan Husband pronounces talaq, then waits for 30 days. Husband pronounces talaq again, then waits for 30 days. Husband pronounces talaq again, waits for the 30 day period. After the 90 day period is over, then the talaq is guaranteed, the talaq is formalized. That means after 90 day period is over, the husband cannot revoke the talaq. That's talaq hasan Then we have talaq asan which is considered to be the most pure form of talaq. What is it? Husband pronounces talaq on his wife, but only once, and then waits for 90 days. During this 90-day period, again, reconciliation can take place, arbitration can take place. During this 90-day period, the husband can revoke talaq at any point in time. But once this 90-day period is over, the divorce is formalized. After that, you cannot revoke the talaq. The husband cannot revoke the talaq. That is what we call talaq-e-asan and talaq-e-hasan. Then there is another variant of talaq. And this is the bone of contention here. This is a very controversial one. Talaq-e-biddat. If you look at this word biddat, it comes from Arabic word bidda. And bidda means innovation. That means this form of talaq was not present at the time of the Prophet. This was innovated later on. And what is this talaq e Husband pronounces talaq on his wife three times in a single utterance. That means the husband says talaq, talaq, talaq three times in a single utterance and then the divorce is formalized. That means in this talaq e the husband need not wait for 90 day period. This talaq e it's called as instant triple talaq. That means instantly when these three words are uttered by the husband, the divorce is formalized. You cannot revoke this talaq again. And it is this talaq bidat which was in question before the Supreme Court. This form of talaq or instant triple talaq was considered to be discriminatory against the Muslim women. Talaq was given on WhatsApp, Skype, through a postal letter, on a phone call. And ultimately, if you look at this instant triple talaq,
there is absolutely no scope for reconciliation as well as arbitration. But this form of talaq, it is banned in predominantly Muslim countries. Egypt, Bangladesh, Indonesia, many Gulf countries as well. If you look at the Islamic State of Pakistan, Pakistan banned this practice of instant triple talaq way back in the early 1960s, but not in India. Why? Vote bank politics. Purely vote bank politics. What is it? Whenever there was a talk that this form of discriminatory instant triple talaq should be banned in this country, the clerics belonging to the Muslim community, predominantly men, they would cry, Islam is in danger. They would advise the political parties, threaten the government that you should not interfere in our religious affairs. Because our religious affairs are guaranteed by the constitution, guaranteed by the fundamental rights, you should not interfere in our religious matters. That means although this instant triple talaq is discriminatory against the women, it is banned in majority of the Muslim countries in this world, but it was not banned in India primarily because of vote bank politics. Because these clerics, predominantly men, they would threaten the political parties, they would threaten the government that if you snatch this instant triple talaq, we are going to snatch votes from you. We are not going to vote for your particular political party. And it is because of this vote bank politics that this instant triple talaq could not be banned in this country. Then what happened? Few years ago, Shaira Banu along with four other Muslim women who were subjected to this instant triple talaq, they approached the Supreme Court. They asked the Supreme Court that this instant triple talaq or talaq e biddat should be declared unconstitutional because it violates our fundamental rights. Supreme Court accepted this plea and Supreme Court set up a constitution bench. A five-judge constitution bench of the Supreme Court was set up to decide whether instant triple talaq should be banned, whether it should be declared unconstitutional or not. And the composition of the Supreme Court bench was also unique. There was a Muslim judge, a Hindu judge, a Parsi judge, a Christian judge, and this bench was headed by a Sikh Chief Justice of India. So this bench, a constitution bench of the Supreme Court, it was set up to decide upon the constitutionality of instant triple talaq. But ironically, this case, since it dealt with gender justice, Supreme Court was hearing a matter on gender justice, but there was no woman judge on this panel. But be that as it may, now these five judges had to decide whether instant triple talaq should continue or whether it should go. Now let's look at what Supreme Court said in 2017. Two judges, Chief Justice of India, Justice Keher and Justice Nazir. What they said? They said instant triple talaq cannot be banned. Why instant triple talaq cannot be banned? These two judges put the ball in the court of the parliament. These judges said parliament has the right to legislate. Parliament has the right to make laws. And if parliament decides to make a law and declare that instant triple talaq will no longer continue as the valid form of a divorce, we don't have an issue, but we are not going to ban it. Let parliament take a call. These two judges also said that religion is not a matter of logic. Religion is a matter of faith. So there are certain things in religion which you may consider irrational, illogical, but nevertheless they are part of the religion because religion is not a matter of logic. 
religion is a matter of faith. In fact, these judges said something else as well. What these judges said? They said instant triple talaq is a part of Muslim personal law. Muslim personal law deals with Islam. Islam is a religion. Right to religion is a fundamental right. So by this logic, Muslim personal law is also a fundamental right. And it is for the first time perhaps in the history of independent India that personal laws were elevated to the status of fundamental rights. That means personal laws, which also talk about instant triple talaq, they were given same sanctity as that of the fundamental rights. So two judges are clearly saying that we are not going to ban instant triple talaq. Let parliament take a call. But what these two judges said, they said we are going to impose a stay on this practice of instant triple talaq for a period of six months. So there are six months available with the parliament. Let parliament take a call, enact a law within this period of six months and decide whether instant triple talaq should continue or whether it should go. So two judges are clearly not in favor of declaring instant triple talaq unconstitutional. What about two other judges? Justice Rohintan Fali Nariman and Justice Yuyu Lalit. What these two judges said? They said instant triple talaq is unconstitutional. Why is it unconstitutional? These two judges said that even if there is a law which was passed prior to the commencement of the constitution. Our constitution got enacted in the year 1950. Muslim personal law was passed in the year 1937. Supreme Court judges said that even if there is a pre-constitutional law, but even this pre-constitutional law must conform, must be in agreement with the constitution. And if any such law is in violation of the fundamental rights guaranteed by the constitution of 1950, we are going to declare such a law as unconstitutional. These two judges said, since instant triple talaq is arbitrary, without any application of logic, since instant triple talaq is arbitrary, violating the constitutional rights, violating the fundamental rights of the Muslim women, that means it violates Article 14 of the Constitution of India, which is right to equality. Supreme Court said right to equality also includes right against arbitrariness. And since instant triple talaq is arbitrary, arbitrarily employed by the Muslim men, Muslim husbands, that is why instant triple talaq is unconstitutional. Now two judges, triple talaq, cannot be declared unconstitutional. Two judges, triple talaq or instant triple talaq is unconstitutional. Now we have to understand, what did the fifth judge on the bench say? The fifth judge, Justice Korean Joseph. Justice Korean Joseph said, instant triple talaq is un-Islamic. Why is it un-Islamic? Korean Joseph said that in Islam, there is a provision for granting divorce. Talaq, but there are two prerequisites for that. Any form of talaq must include two things. Number one, reconciliation. Number two, arbitration. But in this form of instant triple talaq, there is absolutely no scope for reconciliation. There is absolutely no scope for arbitration because this type of talaq is irrevocable. Once instant triple talaq is given, you cannot revoke it. And since it 
violates two prerequisites, two conditions, which is arbitration and reconciliation, which is an integral part of divorce in Islam. That is why instant triple talaq or talaq e bidda is un-Islamic. That means by the majority of three is to two. Two judges, they decide to not interfere in instant triple talaq. Three judges, they decide that this instant triple talaq should not continue. But the reasons given were different. These two judges said it is unconstitutional. Korean Joseph says it is un-Islamic. That means by the majority of three is to two, instant triple talaq is set aside. That means it is no longer a valid form of divorce. It was not declared unconstitutional because only two judges said it is unconstitutional. It was only set aside because the majority judges felt that instant triple talaq should not continue, but for different reasons. Two judges said because it is unconstitutional, it should not continue. One judge said because it is un-Islamic, that is why it should not continue. And that is how in 2017, the Supreme Court ruled that instant triple talaq is set aside. That means even if the husband pronounces instant triple talaq on his wife, it will not lead to divorce because the marriage is still valid. But even after the 2017 verdict, the government said that the Supreme Court order is being flouted. The government said that we have come across more than 60 some reports said more than 250 instances where instant triple talaq has been pronounced by husbands on their wives. That is why there is a need for a law so that this law can punish those husbands who violate the Supreme Court order, who subject their wives to harassment by pronouncing instant triple talaq. That is why the need for a law was felt. And last year also, the government tried to bring in a bill in the parliament it was passed in Lok Sabha, but it failed to get the nod of the Rajya Sabha because the government does not enjoy majority in Rajya Sabha. Then ordinance was promulgated. Then another ordinance was promulgated. And now there is a bill pending in the Rajya Sabha. This Muslim Women Protection of Rights on Marriage Bill 2019 will have to wait and watch whether it will be passed in Rajya Sabha or not. But now let's understand some of the provisions of this bill. Then we will critically analyze this bill. We will look at the arguments of those who criticize this bill and then see whether these arguments are justified or not. First up, let's look at the provisions of this bill. Provision number one, the offense and penalty. This bill makes declaration of talaq a cognizable offense and a husband can be subjected to three years in jail along with a fine. But what is a cognizable offense? Broadly, offenses are either cognizable or non-cognizable. If an offense is cognizable, then the police can arrest the accused without a warrant issued by the magistrate. That means if an individual has committed an act and this act is a cognizable offense, then the police does not require the warrant issued by the magistrate. Even in absence of a warrant issued by the magistrate, this individual can be arrested. That means if the husband pronounces instant triple talaq on his wife, this act is a cognizable offense. That means the police can arrest this husband without any warrant issued by the magistrate. There are other offenses which we call non-cognizable offenses. For example, defamation. If you defame me, would you be arrested? Yes. But for that, 
the magistrate has to issue a warrant. In absence of this warrant issued by the magistrate, the police cannot arrest you. That means offenses are broadly of two types, cognizable offenses and non-cognizable offenses. But instant triple talaq has been classified as a cognizable offense. That means even in absence of a warrant issued by the magistrate, the husband can be arrested. And if it is proven that this husband indeed has pronounced instant triple talaq on his wife, he will be subjected to three years in jail along with a fine. But who can file this complaint? This can be relevant for your prelims examination. Only the wife or the married woman against whom the talaq has been declared, only she can file this complaint or any person related to her by blood or marriage can file this case. To prevent the misuse of this law, now the bill has made it clear that only the married woman against whom the talaq has been declared, only she can file this complaint or someone who is related to her either by blood or marriage can file this case. That means instant triple talaq pronouncement is a cognizable offense. If proven, the husband can be put behind bars for a period of three years along with the fine. That's number one. Number two, bail. Way back in 1970s, Justice V.R. Krishna Iyer, along with Justice P.N. Bhagwati, they made a categorical statement wherein they said that jail is an exception. Bail is a norm. What does that mean? That means as much as possible, release the accused on bail. Jail is only an exception. Under which circumstance? If the accused can tamper with the evidence, if the accused can threaten the witnesses, if the accused can run away from this country, only in these instances should an accused be sent behind the bar. In all other cases, the accused should be released on bail. Previous versions of this bill considered that no bail should be given to the husband who is accused of pronouncing instant triple talaq. But now this new bill, which is pending in the Rajya Sabha, it has a provision for bail. That means this bill has incorporated the ruling of the Supreme Court way back in 1978, wherein the Supreme Court said, jail is an exception, bail is the norm. Now the bail can be granted to the husband by the magistrate. But for that, the magistrate has to hear the woman as well. Without hearing the woman, the magistrate cannot release the husband on bail. But bail is present in the bill. Let's look at another provision. Compoundable offense. Offenses can further be classified into two. Some offenses are compoundable. Other offenses of heinous nature are non-compoundable offenses. What is a compoundable offense? For example, there is a dispute between you and me. You have filed a case before the court of law. And even before the case is heard, you and me can settle this matter. You and me can settle this dispute. And then you can withdraw this case from the judiciary. That means this is something called compoundable offense. And in this case, if the instant triple talaq is pronounced by the husband on his wife, and then the wife has filed a complaint before the police, there is a case pending before the court of law, there can be a settlement between the husband and the wife. And then the wife can withdraw this case from the judiciary, which means this offense is compoundable. But there are other offenses which are not compoundable. There are offenses of heinous nature, for example, rape, for example, murder, where punishment should be given to the offender, punishment should be meted out to the accused. 
those offenses are what we call non-compoundable offenses. This can be another potential statement for your prelims examination. Instant triple talaq, the offense may be compounded by the magistrate upon the request of the woman against whom the talaq has been declared. That's another provision of this bill. Let's look at two more provisions. Number one, allowance. If the husband has pronounced instant triple talaq on his wife, the magistrate will decide upon the allowance as well. The husband has to grant allowance for her dependent children as well. And this amount of allowance will be determined by the magistrate. One more provision, custody. The Muslim women against whom such talaq has been declared and which type of talaq are we talking about? Instant triple talaq. All other forms of talaq are still valid. That means whether it is divorced through mutual consent, khulla, talaq-e-ahsan, talaq-e-hasan, they're still valid. But this talaq-e-biddat or instant triple talaq, if this instant triple talaq is pronounced by the husband on his wife, this Muslim woman can seek the custody of her minor children as well. And the manner of custody will be determined by the magistrate. So these are some of the important provisions of this triple talaq bill or the bill of 2019. So what are we talking about? Let's recap a bit. We are talking about a bill called triple talaq bill. For that to understand, we first need to understand the concept of marriage in Islam that we have done. Then we talked about various forms of divorce that are allowed in Islam. We talked about this talaq-e-biddat or this instant triple talaq which was considered discriminatory against the Muslim women. And in 2017, we talked about the judgment of 2017. Supreme Court said this instant triple talaq is set aside. It was not declared unconstitutional. It was set aside. Then we talked about what was the need for a law. Despite the Supreme Court ruling of 2017, there were repeated violations of the Supreme Court order. That is why the government felt that for the larger interest of gender justice in this country, for the larger justice of the Muslim women in this country, we need a law so that we can punish those husbands who violate the Supreme Court order. And that is how a bill was introduced in the parliament. And now this 2019 bill is pending before the Rajya Sabha and we'll have to wait and watch whether this bill will be passed or not. But then we looked at various important provisions of this bill. But now let's critically analyze all these provisions mentioned in the bill one by one. So we will take up the arguments of those who criticize this bill. The first argument, what conduct becomes crime? It's important for you to understand the difference between a civil wrong and a criminal wrong. A civil wrong is a dispute between two individuals. For example, you and me, we are having a dispute over a piece of land, over some property. That's a dispute between two individuals. And that is what we call a civil wrong or civil case. In civil cases, there are two parties involved. You and me, two sets of individuals, they're fighting a particular case. And ultimately, this case is what we call a civil case. If you look at a criminal case or a criminal wrong, it's also a dispute between two individuals, but of a serious nature. And of a serious nature, which can threaten the society as well. How? Let's say, for example, there is a terrorist. Terrorist is killing few individuals. Isn't it a dispute between two individuals? Because there is a terrorist who is killing some other individual, it is normally a dispute between these individuals and the terrorist. 
but terrorism is an act of offense against the state terrorism is waging war against the country that is why in criminal cases there are two parties also first is defense the other is prosecution and prosecution in this case is the state that means although criminal case is also a dispute between two individuals but the state is the other party in this case that means the other party in this case in a criminal case is the state of india or the union of india let's look at other cases of criminal wrongs for example rape murder dacoity yes these are also offenses committed by individuals against other individuals for example a man is raping a woman a man is killing another man a man is robbing another man it is also a matter of dispute between two individuals but this act has the potential of harming the society this act of rape murder dacoity has the potential of disrupting the normal life of the people that is why john stuart mill in his philosophical work on liberty he talked about a principle called harm principle that means only those offenses should be declared as crimes if they have the potential of harming others if they have the potential of harming the society critics argue how does instant triple talaq sit on this principle called harm principle because let's say for example there is a husband he pronounces instant triple talaq on his wife he says talaq 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 but does it lead to divorce no why because in 2017 supreme court said instant triple talaq is set aside that means whether you pronounce talaq 3 times or 30 times 300 times 3 lakh times 3 crore times even then it won't lead to divorce because marriage is still valid that means when instant triple talaq does not lead to divorce how is it harming the woman when it is not harming the woman so why should you declare instant triple talaq as a crime so that is why there are critics who say instant triple talaq at best is a civil wrong a dispute between the husband and the wife you cannot declare this instant triple talaq which is a dispute between two individuals as a crime and it violates the harm principle given by john stuart mill that's one argument against this instant triple talaq bill let's look at another argument was there a need for a law when government came up with this bill for the first time they said that 2017 judgment two judges of the supreme court chief justice of india and justice nazir they said that let parliament enact a law and declare whether instant triple talaq should continue or not so since two judges of the supreme court in 2017 stated that parliament should take a call parliament should enact a law that is why we are enacting a law that is why this bill should be passed by the parliament so we are only obliging the supreme court ruling but the critics argue is there a need for a law why when in 2017 supreme court ruled that instant triple talaq is set aside under article 141 of the constitution of india it becomes the law of the land that means any order issued by the supreme court any verdict issued by the supreme court any ruling issued by the supreme court it becomes the law of the land under article 141 of the constitution of india so if the law of the land is settled that instant triple talaq is set aside 
If a husband pronounces instant triple talaq on his wife, it does not lead to the annulment of the marriage. The marriage is still valid. So why is there a need for a law? And that is why critics argue that this bill violates the theory of Montesquieu as well. Montesquieu, French philosopher, wrote, There is no greater tyranny than that which is perpetrated under the shield of the law and in the name of the justice. So basically, to paraphrase the statement, Montesquieu is saying that if there is no need for a law, but then the parliament enacts a law, it is tyranny. It's an unjust rule. So if under Article 141, the Supreme Court ruling made it clear that instant triple talaq is set aside, it becomes the law of the land. Why is there a need to pass another law on the same subject? So it is tyranny according to the critics. Now there can be a question on your mind that despite the fact that in 2017 Supreme Court said instant triple talaq is set aside, even if the husband is pronouncing instant triple talaq on his wife, you should punish this husband. You can still do that without bringing in another law. How? Contempt of court. If there is a husband who despite the Supreme Court ruling is pronouncing instant triple talaq on his wife and the government says to punish this husband we need a law, you don't need a law to punish this individual because this individual can be punished because of contempt of court as well. Because he is committing contempt of court. So there was no need for a law according to critics. Then let's look at another argument. It's a very important argument. Men's free. In criminal cases, men's free is very important. Or that's what we call guilty intention. And I will make it simpler for you. For example, you and me, we are walking on the road. We are exchanging pleasantries. We are discussing something. And suddenly I pushed you. Unintentionally, but I pushed you. And you came under a speeding car and you're dead. Will I be punished for murder? No, because what was my intention? My intention was not to push you so that you can come under the speeding car and you will get killed. That was not my intention. So I will not be punished for murder. That means in criminal cases, intention or guilty intention is of very, very important significance. Men's free. There is a husband who is pronouncing instant triple talaq on his wife. Is his intention to grant divorce to his wife? No. Why? Because whether he says instant triple talaq three times or 300 crore times, it is still not going to lead to divorce. So when it is not leading to divorce, why are you punishing this individual for divorce? So basically, if we consider men's free, instant triple talaq should not have been declared a crime. That's another argument according to the critics, which is why they oppose this bill. Then let's look at another argument. Presumption of innocence and the burden of proof. Let's say for example, there is an individual E. He is accused of a crime. He is an accused. Will he be punished by the judiciary? Yes. But under criminal justice system in this country or for that matter anywhere in the world, there are two things important. One is presumption of innocence. That means whenever an accused is brought before the judiciary, the judiciary assumes that this individual is innocent. Then what happens? The prosecution. The state has to prove that this individual is guilty. The state, the prosecution has to prove that this accused is in fact an offender, a criminal. And that is when the judiciary pronounces verdict on this individual and sentences him to jail or to death. 
That means in criminal justice system, there is always something called presumption of innocence. The burden of proof is on the state to convince the judiciary that this individual is guilty beyond any reasonable doubt. Look what can happen in this instant triple talaq case. The husband pronounces instant triple talaq on his wife. Wife files a complaint before the police. The case is before the judiciary. How can this wife prove beyond any reasonable doubt that this gentleman, this husband pronounced instant triple talaq on his wife? If this instant triple talaq was pronounced through WhatsApp, through Skype, maybe there can be recordings of that. But if it is an oral pronouncement of instant triple talaq, how can the prosecution, how can the state prove beyond any reasonable doubt that this individual pronounced instant triple talaq on his wife? Because it will become very difficult for the prosecution to prove the guilt of this husband beyond any reasonable doubt. There are critics who also say that the punishment of three years is disproportionate. That means a husband pronouncing instant triple talaq on his wife will be sentenced behind bars for three years. It is disproportionate. Why? Look at the punishment scheme under the Indian Penal Code. We have an Indian Penal Code. It lists down various punishments for various offenses, for various crimes. Let's look at this punishment scheme. For sedition, it is life imprisonment as well as three years. That means what are the crimes under Indian Penal Code which has three years imprisonment? There is sedition. If you are booked for sedition, you can be sentenced to life imprisonment as well as to three years. For malicious insulting of religion or religious beliefs of any class, three years. For rioting armed with deadly weapon, three years. And now these are very serious offenses. These are very serious crimes. And now you are equating all these serious crimes with instant triple talaq. What does that mean? That means instant triple talaq is in no way comparable to these offenses under Indian Penal Code for which the punishment is the same three years. Because what is happening here? The husband, instead of following the normal route of divorce, where the husband has to wait for 90 days, Instead of waiting for 90 days, he pronounces instant triple talaq and he says that this marriage should get dissolved in an instant. That means you are comparing this individual who has pronounced instant triple talaq on his wife and you are comparing this offense with the offenses such as sedition, such as rioting that to armed, such as malicious insulting of religion or religious beliefs. Critics say, that instant triple talaq pronouncement can in no way be compared with these offenses. But let's look at another punishment scheme under Indian Penal Code. Causing death by a rash and negligent act. Imprisonment of two years only. Bribery. Imprisonment for one year. Destroying, damaging or defiling a place of worship. Imprisonment for two years. Causing public nuisance. Fine of rupees 200. So that means under this instant triple talaq bill, you are saying that these offenses are lesser offenses than instant triple talaq. That is why critics argue that this punishment for a husband who pronounces instant triple talaq on his wife, it is disproportionate. You can't be sentencing an individual for up to three years in jail if this individual has committed a far lesser an act far lesser a crime than these crimes.
That is why critics argue that this punishment scheme is unjustifiable. It is also disproportionate. The critics also argue that because of this bill, something else can happen. So there will be an unintended consequence of this bill. Why? If you look at a particular bill, it has some intended consequences. It has some unintended consequences as well. This instant triple talaq bill, the government intends that the consequence will be that arbitrarily the husband will not divorce his wife. Husband has to follow a particular guideline. Husband has to follow a non-discriminatory method to grant divorce to his wife. This is an intended consequence. That is what the government tries to achieve through this bill. But critics argue there can be an unintended consequence because of this bill. For the fear of prosecution, the husband, because he fears prosecution under this law, what he will do? He will not grant divorce. Instead, what he will do? He will abandon his wife. Just like many Hindus are doing. They are simply abandoning them. That is what critics fear would happen to Muslim women as well. They would be simply abandoned by their husbands. That is going to be an unintended consequence because of this bill. But let's end this discussion with a note written by Fazan Mustafa, who is the Vice Chancellor of Nalsar University of Law in Hyderabad. What he says, no social law can really succeed in solving social problems. Triple talaq is a social problem. The government says that since instant triple talaq judgment of the Supreme Court 2017 was violated by the people, was violated by the Muslim men, that is why we need a law. But look at what is happening at the Sabrimalai. A five-judge constitution bench of the Supreme Court had to decide whether women of menstruating age between 10 to 50, whether they can enter the inner sanctum sanctorum of the Sabrimalai temple in Kerala. By the majority verdict, four judges of the Supreme Court said women of all age groups must pray at the Sabrimalai. And even after this verdict, we have seen protests in Kerala where openly people in Kerala are protesting against this verdict, are openly deciding that we are not going to follow the Supreme Court verdict. Does that mean that tomorrow the government should bring in a law and declare all those protesters as criminals because they are violating, not obeying the Supreme Court order? Because what is required, the Supreme Court ruling, or for that matter, any law, there has to be legal awareness. Maybe... There are individuals who pronounced instant triple talaq on their wives. Maybe they were not knowing that there is a Supreme Court ruling which has set instant triple talaq aside. That means instead of a law, we require legal awareness to create an awareness amongst the Muslim community that instant triple talaq is not a valid form of divorce. That means we can't be making laws just because there have been violations. That's number one. Number two, when this instant triple talaq bill talks about allowance or compensation the husband has to pay to his wife. But look at it this way. This form of talaq is prevalent amongst the lower strata in the Muslim community. Because only in lower strata of the Muslim community do we find instances of instant triple talaq or talaq e bidat. Then the husband would be sent to jail. But then this husband has to provide compensation or allowance to his wife as well as his dependent children. 
how can this individual provide compensation to his wife when he is in jail? When the husband is in jail for three years, which means he cannot earn in these three years, how can he provide compensation to his wife? How can he provide allowance to his dependent children? That means there are some provisions in this bill which are unimplementable. That's number one. Number two, this bill also talks about custody of children, custody of minor children, which will be determined by the magistrate. But when do we normally talk about the custody of children? At the time of divorce. At the time of divorce, the magistrate has to decide, has to rule whether the minor children will go with the mother or with the father. But if you are saying instant triple talaq does not lead to divorce, that means even if the husband is pronouncing instant triple talaq on his wife, the marriage is still valid, the marriage is still legal, that means it does not lead to divorce. Why are we talking about custody of children? That means there are some inconsistencies within the bill as well. That's what Fazan Mustafa writes. He says no social law can really succeed in solving social problems. Law is not a great agent of social control. Because Fazan Mustafa questions, haven't the laws related to dowry, related to child marriage, haven't these laws failed? That means no law can really succeed in solving social problems. We need to create awareness for that. That is what Fazan Mustafa writes. Fazan Mustafa also argues that we need to remove the stigma which is attached to divorce. That means ideally, divorce should not be treated as the end of the world for divorcees. They should be encouraged. They should be encouraged. The divorcees should be encouraged to continue with their lives. We need to encourage the women that you can survive even without a man. There is no need to over-empathize with this institution called marriage. Marriage is a contract. It's a civil contract between two individuals. And just like any other contract, this contract can also be terminated. We should remove the stigma which is attached to divorce. That is what you need to understand from this issue, Triple Talaq Bill. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to Baiju's. September 2018, in a landmark verdict, the Supreme Court decriminalized homosexuality. The Supreme Court also reaffirmed its commitment to constitutional morality and also upheld the LGBT community's right to love. In this lecture, let us look at what is this Section 377. We'll be looking at various petitions filed against Section 377. We will be closely analyzing the verdict of the Honorable Court and then we will look at the way forward. So let's get started, beginning with the text of Section 377 of Indian Penal Code. Whoever voluntarily has carnal intercourse against the order of nature, be it with any man, woman or an animal, it is a crime. And you can be sentenced to life imprisonment. You can be sentenced to a jail term, which may extend to 10 years. And you may also be liable to pay the fine. But what is this carnal intercourse against the order of nature? The explanation is any sexual activity, any sexual interaction, which is not peno-vaginal in nature, it is against the order of nature and as such is a crime. But this section was particularly used to target LGBT community. 
lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgenders. And the irony was that you could be arrested on mere suspicion as well. You see two boys hand-holding each other at a public place, you could get them arrested on the grounds that they are violating Section 377 because it criminalizes homosexuality. 2001, an NGO, NAS Foundation, petitioned the Delhi High Court, pleaded before the Delhi High Court that Section 377 should be declared unconstitutional. Why? Among many other arguments put forward by the NAS Foundation, one argument was that we are working with people from MSM community, men having sex with men. And we see that there is a surge in the incidence of HIV AIDS amongst this community, men having sex with men. So if we have to provide proper medical attention, proper medical care to these individuals, it is imperative that Section 377 is read down and homosexuality is decriminalized. Why? Because there are many people in this country who do not own up to their sexuality because they fear the law. Even if they are suffering from HIV AIDS, they will not claim that they are homosexuals because police will get them arrested and they will be prosecuted under Section 377. So the best way to provide proper medical attention and care to these individuals is to first decriminalize homosexuality so that these people can own up to their sexuality and treatment can be given. 2009, a two-judge bench of the Delhi High Court headed by Justice A.P. Shah ruled that Section 377 of Indian Penal Code is unconstitutional. Why? Because it violates Article 14, which talks about right to equality. Why? Because it violates Article 15, which talks about non-discrimination. Why? Because it violates Article 21, which talks about right to life and personal liberty. And please understand, right to life also includes right to live with dignity. Since Articles 14, 15, 21 are getting violated by Section 377, it is unconstitutional. This judgment of the Delhi High Court was celebrated by many. Many people thought that Indian democracy is now coming to life. Many people thought that this is a welcome judgment which celebrates plurality, diversity in this country. And immediately, one constitutional authority came into the picture. And that was Election Commission of India. Election Commission of India said, till date, if you had to contest an election, if you had to register as a voter, you had to either claim that you are male or female. Now we are giving you a third option, others. Instead of choosing either male or female, you can choose your third gender, others. And for the first time, transgender community could contest elections under this category, others, because previously they had to contest election either as male or female. But then as this moment was celebrated throughout 2013, when this matter went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said Section 377 is not unconstitutional. Section 377 is constitutional and Section 377 was retained on the statute books of this country. This came to be known as the Koshal Judgment. 
So effectively, this Koshal judgment reversed the judgment of the Delhi High Court because the Delhi High Court had ruled Section 377 is unconstitutional. And now in 2013, the Supreme Court is saying Section 377 will continue. Homosexuality is criminalized again. Why did Supreme Court rule this way? I'm going to tell you slightly later. Then came April 2014. National Legal Services Authority judgment. The Supreme Court recognized transgender as a third gender in this country. The Supreme Court said that recognizing the third gender is not only a social issue, is not only a medical issue, but it is a human rights issue. The Supreme Court judgment was significant, historic. Why? Because it challenged the dominant view of gender that we view in a society. It challenged this binary of male, female, men, women, boy, girl, and upheld the diversity in this country. The Supreme Court also directed the state that you should take affirmative action policy for the transgender community because they have been victimized. You can treat them as minorities and affirmative action policy can be directed towards them. The Supreme Court judgment was remarkable because the Supreme Court recognized that the individual experience of gender is one of the most significant fundamental aspects of self-determination, dignity and freedom. So this 2014 judgment recognized transgender as a third gender. So the binary that we had created in our society was dispelled and now we have a third gender in the society. But if you look at this 2014 judgment and 2013 judgment, in 2013 judgment, homosexuality was recriminalized. So I am confused. If I am a gay, my right to choose my gender has been recognized in 2014. But I will still be prosecuted for having gay sex. Because my gender has been recognized, but not my right to love. Homosexuality, despite this 2014 judgment, continued to be a crime. Then came Dr. Shashi Tharoor, a two-time member of parliament from the Congress party. He tried to introduce a private member's bill in Lok Sabha. And he wanted that Section 377 should be read down so that homosexuality is decriminalized. But this bill was not even allowed to be tabled in Lok Sabha. Then what Supreme Court did? The final hope was in 2016. Supreme Court referred this matter to a constitution bench. And now the five-judge bench of the Supreme Court would decide whether Section 377 will continue or whether homosexuality will be decriminalized. So if we need to recap, 2009, a two-judge bench of the Delhi High Court says Section 377 is unconstitutional. 2013, Supreme Court is saying Section 377 is constitutional. 2014, the same Supreme Court is recognizing transgender as a third gender. And now Supreme Court Constitution bench will have to decide what is going to be the future of homosexuality in this country. But meanwhile, something else happened. The privacy judgment of the Supreme Court. A nine-judge Constitution bench 
of the Supreme Court unanimously agreed that right to privacy is a fundamental right under Article 21 of Indian Constitution. Justice Chandrachur wrote in his judgment, No matter whom you love, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear is none of the business of the state. So many people thought that this privacy judgment will have a huge role to play in decriminalizing homosexuality. Because if in this privacy judgment, Supreme Court has clearly stated that it is none of the business of the state to interfere in the private bedroom of two consenting adults, Section 377 will be deleted. But before we analyze the judgment of the Supreme Court, wherein the Supreme Court decriminalized homosexuality, let us look at the argument of those who opposed the decriminalization of homosexuality. And these people talk about culture. Let us look at this culture argument. What are these movies, art forms, books, paintings, so on and so forth? These are mirrors to the society. Whatever is happening in the society, writers write books, filmmakers make movies, painters draw their paintings, sculptors do their work, so on and so forth. Look at the temples of Khujraho. They openly depict gay sex. That means homosexuality is something which was prevalent at that point in time. The most widely worshipped form of Lord Shiva, Ardana Rishwar, what is it? Half male, half female, diversity. Lord Ram gave significant power to transgender community to bless important ceremonies such as childbirth. So transgenders are celebrated in Ramayana. Hazrat Bulle Bullasha, he used to dress as women and dance with the eunuchs and was performing raks. Mir Takimir, one of the most celebrated Urdu poets in his poetry extolled his love for fellow men. So homosexuality is something that was part of our culture. Homosexuality is something that was celebrated in our culture. This celebration of our diversity was converted into a binary by the British. When British entered into the picture and created a binary of our genders, male, female, no other diversity. That means this argument that homosexuality is against our culture does not stand because history does not agree with that. There is another argument put forward by those who opposed homosexuality that homosexuality is against the order of nature. This is a medieval Christian concept. According to this concept, the only purpose of having sex is to produce children. That means sex for recreation, sex for fun is against the order of nature. And in a 21st century democratic republic, we cannot apply the medieval Christian thoughts. So this argument is also invalid. There are others who say homosexuality is unnatural. But what is natural and what is unnatural? Who will decide this? Homosexuality is found in over 1000 species. So clearly it cannot be something which we can term unnatural. But there are others who claim homosexuality is a disorder. But American Psychiatry Association way back in 1973 
removed homosexuality from the list of disorders. World Health Organization in 1992 also removed homosexuality from the list of disorders. Our own law, 2017 Mental Health Care Act, it expressly prohibits discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation. That means those who are homosexuals cannot be dubbed as suffering from mental disorders. So homosexuality is clearly not a disorder. So one, homosexuality is not against our culture. Homosexuality is not against the order of nature. Homosexuality is not unnatural. Homosexuality is not a disorder. But let's assume for a while that homosexuality is a disorder. And those suffering from these disorders, do we have to treat them or do we have to club them? But let's for the sake of argument assume that homosexuality is a disorder. But it is only a disorder then. It is not a crime. If there is a disorder, you have to treat those people suffering from those disorders. You cannot treat patients as criminals. Now let us look at the views of legal experts. Kapil Sibyl, one of India's legal luminary and also the former law minister of India, he says that a person's sexuality is his or her most precious and most private of rights. Almost all the constitutional experts and legal experts, they are unanimous in their view that Section 377 goes against the principles of equality, non-discrimination and dignity, which are part of our constitution. Now, let us look at the reasoning provided by the Supreme Court in 2013, wherein they reversed the judgment of the Delhi High Court and recriminalized homosexuality in this country. Reasoning number one, onus is on the parliament, not the courts. Supreme Court said, Indian Penal Code, of which 377 is a part of, has been amended more than 30 times since the independence. And in all these years, the parliament did not deem it fit to either delete section 377 or revert section 377. So we cannot do that. Let parliament take a call. If they want to delete section 377, let them do it. We will not interfere. In this case, the Supreme Court performed something what we call judicial evasion. They decided not to interfere in this case. Second reasoning of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, ironically, that LGBT community is a minuscule minority. And for such minuscule minority, we should not have a law. Third reasoning, Nas Foundation pleaded before the Supreme Court that members of the LGBT community have been victimized, abused. Members of the LGBT community have been thrown into the jails on mere suspicion as well. Supreme Court said that is not our problem. If the law is being misused, that's the problem of the parliament, not the courts. And many people criticized the Supreme Court judgment, this Koshal judgment of 2013. But now let's look at the global picture. In 2002, there was a case wherein in Europe, the gender that has been assigned to an individual at the time of the birth, you could not change this gender in your certificates. 
That means once a gender has been assigned, it will remain permanently your gender for your entire life. In Christine Goodwin versus the United Kingdom, the European Court of Human Rights held that disallowing transsexuals to change their birth certificates or marrying in their own gender is a breach of European Convention on Human Rights. That's the global picture. And Britain, which imposed Section 377 on the people of this country, in their own country, they have already decriminalized homosexuality. But now the justice has finally arrived and arrived in the form of Navte Johar versus Union of India. And in this landmark verdict, five judges of the Constitution bench, by a majority verdict of five is to zero, declared that homosexuality is not a crime. Let us look at the arguments put forward by the Supreme Court judges while ruling that homosexuality is no longer a crime in this country. If you look at this judgment, there is a strong South African flavor. Drawing from the South African Constitutional Court's vision of transformative constitutionalism. Chief Justice of India, Justice Deepak Misra, wrote in his judgment that constitution should be viewed as a living document. And this constitution should be in a position to transform the lives of the people. The purpose of the constitution is to transform a society. That's the most beautiful part of this judgment. The second most important part of this judgment is the principle of non-retrogression of rights. Which means that as a society, when it has been given a certain set of rights, and because of these rights, the society has reached a certain standard. We cannot take away these rights after that. When in right to privacy judgment, we gave right to privacy to the people of this country, we cannot now snatch this privacy from LGBT community. So there is this principle of non-retrogression of rights. The remarks of Justice Rohintan Fali Nariman. We have a North Star. North Star appears motionless in the sky, fixed. And all the stars in the Northern Hemisphere appear rotating around it. Because of its fixed location, it becomes an excellent fixed point from which we can draw the measurements for navigation, for astronomy. As students of geography, you would know better than me about the significance of this North Star. But Rohintan Fali Nariman says that fundamental rights chapter is like the North Star of the, in the universe of constitutionalism in India. So we have to look at everything from the perspective of this chapter of fundamental rights. And if the fundamental rights chapter talks about equality, non-discrimination, dignity, then we have to provide all these features to the LGBT community. Another brilliant point in this judgment is the presumption of constitutionality. There is a doctrine which is followed by the Supreme Court called presumption of constitutionality. That means whenever parliament makes a law, frames a law, and this law is challenged in the Supreme Court, Supreme Court begins with the assumption that this law is constitutional. Only when it is proven otherwise that the Supreme Court will strike this law down. That means there is always this presumption that the laws made by the parliament are constitutional. 
But Supreme Court in this judgment said there is no presumption of constitutionality when laws are made by the colonial foreign regime. This is a brilliant statement, a brilliant, brilliant statement. Why? Because this judgment of the Supreme Court can have an impact on other colonial laws as well. For example, sedition. For example, adultery. That's the significance of this judgment. If you look at this judgment, there were many quotes quoted by honorable judges of the Supreme Court. Chief Justice of India quoted a German thinker, I am what I am and take me as I am. Similarly, Justice Chandrachur quoted Walter Benjamin, there is no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. He writes, civilization has been brutal and civilization has been brutal for the members of LGBT community. Justice Indu Malhotra, the only woman judge on the panel, she sought apology from the LGBT community for the historic injustices meted out to the community. But the stirring message of this judgment is social morality cannot trump constitutional morality. What is moral to you may be immoral to me and vice versa. So which morality do we have to take into account? Constitutional morality, which should trump every other notion of morality in the society. And this judgment is the reaffirmation of the right to love. Now, what is the current status of Section 377? Section 377 is not deleted from the Indian Penal Code. But Section 377 cannot be used to criminalize homosexuality. But Section 377 will still apply in case of bestiality. Having sex with animals. Having sex with animals is unnatural against the order of nature because animals cannot give consent. Since it is non-consensual sexual activity, Section 377 will apply. Section 377 will apply in case of men or women trying to have sex with the minors. And in that case, Section 377 will apply. But then what is the way forward? This is where we encounter the role of the legislature. The question before the judiciary was a very limited one. To check whether homosexuality can continue as a crime or not. And Supreme Court made the right choice and decriminalized homosexuality because it goes against the fundamental rights of the citizens of this country. But then what about their right to marry? What about adoption? What about inheritance? And the road ahead is going to be slightly tricky for the LGBT community. Why? Because legislature, unless and until the legislature decides to make suitable laws, right to marry, right to adopt, right to inheritance may not be provided to the LGBT community. What is the reason? The reason is that laws related to marriage, adoption, inheritance are governed by the personal laws of the communities. Hindu Marriages Act explicitly makes it clear that the marriageable age for a bridegroom is 21 and for the bride it is 18. Bridegroom and bride, that means male and female. That means Hindu Marriages Act does not envisage marriage between the same sexes. Similarly, Muslim personal law, it also talks about marriage between man and a woman. 
In fact, the secular law, Special Marriages Act, also talks about marriage between man and a woman. So they do not talk about, the laws do not talk about same-sex marriages. Similar is the case with adoption, similar is the case with inheritance. But there are others who say that Supreme Court should follow the route of the Supreme Court of United States of America. Because in 2016, the United States of America Supreme Court in Obergefell versus Hodges declared that all the 50 states in the United States of America should also provide for gay marriages in this country because not allowing gay marriages goes against the constitutional rights of the members of the LGBT community. So there are people who are saying that Indian Supreme Court should also follow the U.S. Supreme Court and allow gay marriages, adoption, inheritance to the members of the LGBT community. But it is better that Parliament take a call and decide to suitably amend the laws related to marriage, adoption, inheritance, because then legislature will cede its powers to legislate to the judiciary which goes against the principle of separation of powers. So that is it regarding section 377 of Indian Penal Code. Thank you for watching. This topic has huge relevance in all the three stages of your examination process. Prelims, mains, and the personality test. What sort of questions can be asked in the prelims examination that we will discuss towards the end of this lecture? So far as mains examination is concerned, questions concerning this topic can be asked in GS paper 2 as well as the sociology segment of your GS paper 1. So let's get started. For any and every crime, there must be a law such that number one, justice is delivered to the victim. And number two, the perpetrator is awarded a punishment such that this punishment acts as a deterrent for others. This is the idea of criminal justice system. In this lecture, let us not talk about the crimes perpetrated by the adults, but let us talk about the crimes that are perpetrated by the children in this country. First up, let's talk about section 82 and 83 of Indian Penal Code. What does Section 82 of Indian Penal Code say? Section 82 of IPC says nothing is an offence that is committed by a child less than 7 years of age. That means a child of less than 7 years of age cannot be prosecuted regardless of his crime. At the same time, Section 83 of IPC, it says that nothing is an offence that is committed by a child. But who is the child? about 7 years of age and below 12 years of age. Nothing is an offence if it is a crime committed by a child about 7 years of age and below 12 years of age, provided the child is not intellectually mature. What is this intellectual maturity we are talking about? Whether the child knows what is the crime that he is committing, the nature of the crime, the circumstances in which he is committing that crime, as well as the consequences of that crime. If he is not mature enough, he cannot be prosecuted. But if he is mature enough, he can be prosecuted. He is liable for his actions. Now let us look at this picture. Act of a child below 7 years is not liable. Above 7 years but below 12 years 
if he is of mature intellect, he is liable. If he is of immature intellect, he is not liable. And about 12 years, a child is liable for his crime. Now, when I say liable, that means a child can be prosecuted. But prosecuted by whom and how? That's the question that we will be looking at. But before that, let us look at the history of legislations which have been enacted and drafted in this country concerning children in conflict with the law. Number of legislations, beginning with Apprentices Act 1850, the Reformatory School Act 1876, the recommendations of the Indian Jails Committee 1919, Children Act of 1960, which was the first legislation drafted for the children after India became independent, and Juvenile Justice Act 1986. According to Juvenile Justice Act 1986, who is a child? A boy is a child if he is less than 16 years of age. A girl is a child if she has not yet attained the age of 18 years. Now the crimes committed by these children below the age of 18, below the age of 16, how are we going to deal with them? And these children were not to be tried in a regular criminal court, but by a juvenile justice board. What is this juvenile justice board? We'll come to that a bit later. But something's changed. The year was 1985, the year of Beijing rules, also known as United Nations Standard Minimum Rules for the Administration of Juvenile Justice 1985. What are these Beijing rules telling us? Number one, Beijing rules tell us that juveniles cannot be treated at par with the adults. That means juveniles are to be treated differently from an adult. Point number one. Point number two, there are countries which fix an age beyond which a person is criminally liable for his actions. Beijing rules tell us that while deciding on this age, this age, the beginning of that age shall not be fixed at too low an age level. That means Beijing rules are telling us that countries shall have to look into emotional, mental and intellectual capacity of a child. And number three, juveniles must be separated from adults. What does that mean? In India, for example, a boy less than 16 years of age and about 12 years of age was to be prosecuted for a criminal offense. But this boy shall not be sent to an adult jail but would be sent to another institution separated from adults so that these adults do not indoctrinate this juvenile and he is transferred back into the area, into the world of crimes. That means reform was the central agenda, central purpose of these Beijing rules. Something changed again. The year was 1989, the year of United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. This convention draws attention to four sets of rights, four sets of civil, social, political, economic and cultural rights of the children. These rights are number one, right to survival, which includes the right to life, a right to a name, a right to a nationality. Number two, right to protection, which includes freedom from all forms of exploitation, abuse, inhuman treatment. Right number three, right to development, which includes the right to education, a right to leisure, recreation and cultural activities. And point number four, right 
to participation, which includes respect for the views of the child, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience. According to this UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, juvenile is a child who has not yet attained the age of 18 years. And this UN Convention also clarifies that countries who have signed this convention should not try these juveniles as adults. India ratified this convention in the year 1992. But then we were treating boys about the age of 16 as adults. So we needed to change the law. Not just to be in agreement with the UN Convention, not just to be in agreement with the Beijing rules, but also the constitutional obligations under Article 15, Clause 3. So we enacted a new legislation, and this legislation was Juvenile Justice, Care and Protection of Children Act 2000. Under this act, juvenile is a child who is less than 18 years of age. So the distinction between boys and girls was eradicated. Boys and girls are to be treated as juveniles if they are less than 18 years of age. Also, this Juvenile Justice Act talks about two sets of children. Children in need of care and protection and juvenile in conflict with the law. Now, who is this child in need of care and protection? A child who due to various reasons is found in difficult circumstances and is in danger of survival and growth. For example, children found begging on the streets. For example, children rescued from the brothels. Who is going to take care of these children? Who is going to be the competent authority for this? The competent authority under this act is Child Welfare Committee. So this is a child who is in need of care and protection. But who is this juvenile in conflict with the law? A child who is alleged to have committed a crime. But how are we going to deal with such children? These children are not to be tried in a regular court, but by Juvenile Justice Board. Now let us talk about what is this Juvenile Justice Board? What is the composition of the Juvenile Justice Board? Juvenile Justice Board is comprised of a Metropolitan Magistrate or a Judicial Magistrate of First Class, two social workers, at least one of whom should be women, and all the decisions shall be taken unanimously. What does the 2000 law say? 2000 law tells us that juveniles are not to be exposed to the media. No pictures, no revealing of the identity, nothing. And at the same time, how are we going to deal with this juvenile? A juvenile below the age of 18 years has committed an offense. Now this juvenile is to be prosecuted. But this juvenile is not to be prosecuted in a regular criminal court. But this juvenile is to be prosecuted by this juvenile justice board. And the maximum punishment that this juvenile justice board can inflict upon this juvenile is a period of three years. After which he will be released back to the society. But where is he going to stay in those three years? He's going to stay not in a regular jail, but in an observation home, in a reform home, where he will be provided vocational training, where he will be provided education, so that this child, who was in conflict with the law, is integrated back to the society as responsible citizens of this country. Now, something's changed again. This time, not the law, not the UN Convention, 
but the behavior of children, particularly in the age group of 16 to 18, what we call rise in juvenile delinquency. Now, what does this term mean? This simply means participation in illegal behavior, illegal activities by minors. But how are the numbers stacked? What are the statistics telling us? Let us look at some of those. 30% rise in crimes by juveniles in the period 2012 to 2014. Not just this. According to NCRB data, the percentage of juvenile crimes in proportion to the total crimes has increased from 1% to 1.2% in the period 2003 to 2013. And a very interesting statistic. 70% of the juveniles accused of crimes are in the age group of 16 to 18 years. So we needed a change in the law to try these children, particularly in the age group of 16 to 18, who have committed adult crimes. Now people are saying, if you are old enough to rape, you surely are old enough to hang. Now let us look at some of the examples. December 16, 2012 gang rape. One of the offenders in that horrific, gruesome crime was a juvenile who was six months short of 18 years of age. Under the existing law, all he got was three years in a reform home after which he is released. Although he is under the observation, under the ages of an NGO, but still he is a released man. Shakti Mills gang rape in Mumbai. In two separate incidences, the convicts were juvenile. So we needed to change the law. Public opinion was mobilized and politicians were forced to enact a new legislation. But some people cried. Let's not reduce the age from 18 to 16 because this will be a violation of the rights of the children. But let me give you an example. A boy of 17 years of age has killed the father of a 17-year-old boy. Whose rights are we talking about? The perpetrator or the victim? Clearly, victim too has a right. And that right is the right to justice. Again, Supreme Court, while heading a case related to juvenile crime, observed that 2000 Act needs to be reviewed due to increasing heinous crimes by juveniles. And Supreme Court made an interesting observation. Supreme Court remarked that for crimes like rape and murder, it is hard to conceive that the juveniles were unaware, are unaware of the consequences. And we changed the law and the new legislation that was passed by Rajya Sabha this week was Juvenile Justice, Care and Protection of Children Bill 2014. Now let us look at some of the specifics of this legislation. Number one, this bill replaces the 2000 Act. Fine. Number two, the bill permits juveniles between the ages of 16 and 18 to be tried as adults for heinous crimes. Now this law makes a distinction. This law talks about three types of offenses committed by juveniles. What are these offenses? Number one, heinous offenses. Which are these heinous offenses? Those with minimum punishment of seven years under Indian Penal Code or any other law. For example, rape, murder. These are the heinous offenses for which under Indian Penal Code or any other law, the minimum punishment is seven or more years. These are heinous crimes. Second category, serious crimes for which a punishment is from three years to seven years. Then there are petty offenses. 
that means for which a punishment is less than three years. This bill, which was recently passed by the Rajya Sabha, also talks about two important things. One, a juvenile cannot be awarded death penalty. And number two, a juvenile cannot be given life imprisonment without the possibility of release. Now, what does that mean, without the possibility of release? Supreme Court of India and various other high courts in different parts of the country have said that life imprisonment means, in some offenses, imprisonment for the full natural life of a convict. But this bill says that if you have to award life imprisonment to a juvenile, you can award that, but specify the time period of that life imprisonment. This cannot be life imprisonment for the natural life of a convict. What are the other highlights of this bill? This bill talks about that any person who is between the ages of 16 years and 18 years and has committed a heinous offense may be tried as an adult irrespective of the date of apprehension. Now this is a very important point but we will come to this point a bit later. Let us talk about the other point. In all other cases, juveniles will get maximum of three years in institutional care as determined by the Juvenile Justice Board. But how will the law proceed? For example, a juvenile in the age group of 16 to 18 years has committed a heinous crime. For example, a rape or a murder. Now what will happen to this child? This child will be brought before the Juvenile Justice Board. And Juvenile Justice Board will conduct an inquiry. What will be that inquiry all about? Whether or not the child knew of the nature of the crime, whether or not the child knew of the circumstances in which he committed that crime, whether or not the child knew of the consequences of the crime that he is perpetrating. After this inquiry, this Juvenile Justice Board will pass an order. And this order can be of three types. Number one, the Juvenile Justice Board may say that this child requires counseling, this child requires some amount of community service. That is it. After that, he is bound to go. Second type of order, the Juvenile Justice Board may say that this child requires to stay at an observation home for a temporary or a larger period of time. And the third order that this Juvenile Justice Board can pass is that they may refer this juvenile to a children's court to determine whether to try him as an adult. So three options, three orders can be passed by Juvenile Justice Board after an inquiry. Either asking for community service, either sending this child to a reform or observation home for a specific time or a larger period of time. And the Juvenile Justice Board can also refer this juvenile to a children's court. And now this children's court will decide whether or not to treat this juvenile as an adult. Now what is this children's court that we are talking about? This children's court is a sessions court notified under the commissions for the protection of the child rights act 2005. Also for the purposes of this bill, once a juvenile is referred by juvenile justice board to this children's court, this children's court will decide whether or not this child is to be treated as an adult or this children's court can also decide whether this child is required to perform community service or this child is required to be sent to an observation home for some period of time. This is how this law will proceed.
So it is not that every child in the age group of 16 to 18 years will be tried as an adult, but only those individuals who fall in this category of 16 to 18 who are tried, who are accused of crimes which are heinous in nature, only those children shall be treated as an adult. But that too depends upon the recommendations of Juvenile Justice Board and the Children's Court. Another provision of this bill talks about adoption. But the framework, the guidelines of this adoption process will be formulated by Central Adoption Resource Agency, CARP. Now, how do you look at this particular piece of legislation? Now, let us look at the global picture. In England and Wales, for several offences, children about the age of 10 years are held to be criminally liable. In Australia, this prescribed age limit is 14 to 18 years. In United States of America, although it's a federal constitution, the legislations, the laws varies from state to state. In most of the states in the United States, the age is 12 years. In New York and Texas, for example, the age is 17 years. In Bangladesh, children above the age of 16 years are held to be criminally liable, while as in Denmark, the age is 15. But how do you look at this particular piece of legislation? What are the psychologists saying? Psychologists now feel that children are grown-ups by the age of 14, responsible for their actions. Now, what are these psychologists telling us? They're saying two or three decades ago, what an adult of the age group of 21 years could understand the same things today a child of 14 years of age is able to comprehend easily that means there is advancement in the maturity among the children today Kailash Satyarthi the Nobel laureate of India tells that this bill is a major legislative reform I'm quoting Kailash Satyarthi he says that whether it's a crime by a child or on a child, the focus has to be on reform and restitution and not just deterrence. And at the same time, he says the protection framework provided under this law is extremely robust. Now, whatever the contents of this legislation might be, we understand that this is not a perfect legislation, but let not perfect be the enemy of God. This was one side of the picture. Now let's turn to the other side of the debate. The criticisms. This is not a juvenile justice bill. This is juvenile injustice bill. Those who are speaking in this language, let us understand their point of view. So that you have the best of both worlds. Pros and cons. Good and bad. Black and white. And sometimes also you need to understand the grey shades as well. Because the world currently is not just black and white. Let us look at these criticisms. But first up, let's talk about statistics. 56% of the juveniles accused of crimes come from families whose annual income does not exceed 25,000 rupees. One in eight juvenile criminal is an orphan. Just 1.2% of all crimes are committed by juveniles. 6% of all rape accused are juveniles. 80% of all these juvenile criminals that we talk about never went to a high school. What are the specific criticisms of this piece of legislation? Number one, some argue that this legislation is against the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. 
because UN convention says that all the signatory countries shall treat separately adults and juveniles and juvenile is a child who is less than 18 years of age but here for certain heinous offenses we are treating children in the age group of 16 to 18 as adults but this argument may not be valid from the legal point of view because we have not gone for a blanket reduction in the age from 18 to 16 years so this particular criticism may not be grounded and this particular criticism may not be the reason on which this bill can be struck down by the Supreme Court. What are the other objections of this bill? Some argue that this bill is against Article 20, Clause 1 of the Indian Constitution, which forbids the legislature to enact an ex post facto criminal legislation. That means the legislature in this country cannot enact a criminal law and give it a retrospective effect. But what is this law talking about? This law talks about that if a juvenile has committed a heinous offense, a juvenile in the category of 16 to 18 years, if he is apprehended, if he is arrested at the age of 21, he shall not be tried by a juvenile justice board, but he shall be tried by a regular adult criminal court. Critics argue this is in violation of the fundamental rights guaranteed under Part 3 of the Indian Constitution, under Article 20, Clause 1 of the Indian Constitution. Did I say in the previous part that there is a rise in juvenile delinquency in this country? Wait, let's check the facts again or revisit these facts. Yes, there is a rise in juvenile delinquency, but what is the reason? The reason is an amendment to the criminal law brought about by the previous UPA government, which says that the age of consent for sex is 18 years. But what is happening in this country? A boy of 17 years of age and a girl of 17 years of age are in relationship with each other and they also take part in sexual activities. But this sexual act is consensual. But the family of the girl objects, the family files a case before the police and the girl is forced by the family to testify before the court as well as the police. Now what does that mean? That means this act between a boy and a girl, which was consensual, now it turns out to be statutory rape. Because a girl cannot have sexual relationship before she turns 18. And if she had, that means the other boy has committed a statutory rape on her. How are we going to deal with such cases under the new law which is recently passed by the Rajya Sabha? Ironically, in India, you cannot vote before you are 18 years of age. You cannot drive before you are 18 years of age. You cannot even drink if you are not 18 years of age. Although excise is a state subject, the drinking age varies from state to state. In some states, the drinking age is 25 years. So that means you're not old enough to drink. You're not old enough to vote. You're not old enough to drive, but you're old enough to rot in jail. Let's look at another thing. In the aftermath of the horrific gruesome gang rape of the 23-year-old physiotherapist student in Delhi. A committee was set up by the government of India, Justice Varma Committee. This committee also looked at this aspect, whether or not should we reduce the age from 18 to 16. What did Varma Committee say? Let me quote the Varma Committee report. We felt 
that if a child less than 18 years is subjected to a normal trial and a normal jail, there remains no chance of a rehabilitation. They often turn into hardened criminals, repeat offenders. Moreover, the child's brain at that age is still in its formative stage. They are not mature enough to understand the full implications of their act. Not just Justice Verma Committee, Parliamentary Standing Committee of HRD. What did they say? The existing juvenile system is not only reformative and rehabilitative in nature, but also recognizes the fact that 16 to 18 years is an extremely sensitive and critical age requiring greater protection. Hence, there is no need to subject them to different or adult judicial system. Also, some are asking these questions. What if tomorrow a child who is 15 years and 11 months old also commit a heinous offense? Now, will you further dilute this law and bring down the age limit? The fact of the matter is that we are over-legislated but under-enforced country in this world. No one talks about the reform of juvenile justice boards, the reform of the observation homes. The pendency of the cases before this juvenile justice board, more than 45,000. How are we going to deal with these cases then? What are the other issues with this bill? Most cases of juvenile crimes stem from substance abuse. But there is not one center, not one de-addiction center in this country that is exclusively dedicated to children. In fact, even All India Institute of Medical Sciences has only two beds for adolescent de-addiction. But there is another important issue. In India, we guess the age. Only 15% of the births are reported in this country. That means when we are trying this individual, when we are trying this child, we are assuming that he is 16 or 18 years of age. He can be even lower that. But there is another issue as well. A report in 2013 by Asian Center for Human Rights titled India's Hell Holds. This report documented boys in these government protection homes are sodomized. The girls are tortured and sexually exploited in these protection homes. So in this lecture, what is it that we talk about? We talked about the age controversy. We talked about Juvenile Justice Act of 1986, 2000 and the new legislation which has been passed by the Rajya Sabha. We also talked in favor of the bill. We also gave you arguments against this bill. But what are the questions that are expected from the prelims examination point of view? Let us look at one of those. Consider the following statements and answer the questions given at the end. Children can complain directly to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child about the alleged violations of their rights. Now what has happened? In April 2014, an optional protocol child rights entered into force. This optional protocol was ratified by 10 countries of the world. As per this protocol, children can complain directly to the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child about the alleged violations of their rights. So this option is correct. The point number two, rape victim's name cannot be disclosed under any circumstance. Now can you disclose the name of the victim or not? 
there exists something called Section 228A, which criminalizes the disclosure of names of the rape victims. But there is an exception. The exception is found in Section 228A, subclause 2, subclause C. You can disclose the name of the victim provided you have been given a written authorization by the rape victim herself. Now, if the rape victim is dead, or the rape victim is a minor, or the rape victim is of unsound mind, then the written authorization of the next of the king can be taken. What are the questions that can be expected from the main's point of view? Civil society activism and public opinion are the tools that can be used to force the parliamentarians to divorce obstructionism and focus on legislating laws for the larger good. Comment on the pros and cons of such tools. Why? Because we saw that because of public pressure, because of the fact that the Nirbhaya's parents took lead in these protests, the Rajya Sabha was forced to fall in line and pass this legislation. So that is the reason why this question has been asked. Question number two. Women and children are two vulnerable sections of our society. Suggest innovative measures that can eradicate or at least curb violence against and exploitation of these groups. Because we have seen that the polarizing debate on this juvenile justice bill has pitted children against the women. So that is why this question has been asked. In the comment section, please write answers to these questions so that we can pick them up. But at the end of this lecture, let me tell you something about what I feel about this bill, if at all you are interested in listening to that. When I said that the majority of these juveniles come from poor families, I do not intend to justify their crimes or their criminal activities. All I'm trying to say is that please understand the social conditions from which these children come from. These children come from vulnerable sections of our society. Neglected by state, neglected by government, neglected by civil society, neglected by you, neglected by me. And when they are neglected, no schools, no education, they start working to feed their family. Imagine the burden on a child who has now taken the responsibility of feeding his family. And in the meanwhile, he enters into a bad company. He is infected by the infected ideas of these bad companies. And ultimately, these children enter into the world of crimes. So instead of talking about vengeance, instead of talking about retribution, let us please eradicate the social conditions which create these criminals in the first place. When you look into the eyes of these criminals, you won't just see a criminal, you will also see a victim. The victim of society, the victim of social apathy. Let us have more schools in this country and not jails. Let rationality determine our policies, not emotions. Let us talk about reform and not retribution. Let us talk about care and not vengeance. Let's bring all these children back into our national mainstream. Thank you for watching.